If you would please turn to Isaiah chapter 46, and we're just going to continue right along. And last week, Jimmy uh, continued on for us in chapter 45, and he ended in verse 25, and that very much just took kind of a a large sweeping view at salvation, didn't it? Uh, Just what is God's plan? What is God's big idea? What is he doing? And uh, we're looking uh, specifically just at how God is working salvation throughout time because our God is the sovereign Lord of history, right? And hasn't he established himself as such? He's set himself up as the sovereign Lord of history, as the God of all gods, and uh, here he is, and we're supposed to do something with that. But over and over, he's making himself known. He'll give us kind of a, a clue of something new that he's doing, right? Something that he's about to do, but then he says, but remember who I am. Remember who is saying these things to you. It is I. It's God, the God above all gods, the true God, the one God, the sovereign God. And uh, so here we get, yet again, in chapter 46, we're going to kind of, uh, in a sense, narrow in again at something that God is going to do at their time and in that place. But then it's going to pull back out again, and it's going to show us that God is doing something even bigger that, that goes beyond their time. But God is only able to do what he's doing because of who he is, because of his character. And we're going to see that this morning. Now, just to let you know, what we're going to do is I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to kind of set the historical, cultural context. uh, Because it's very important to these couple of verses. So we're going to take a little bit of time to do that. And then we're going to see how that plays itself out in the rest of chapter 46. Okay, so let's look at verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 46, verses 1 and 2, and it says, Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. I love passages like this because it just, in a sense, it kind of makes me smile. It makes me almost laugh because I can just picture myself uh, maybe, I don't know, when, I, when, when the Bible was just first very, very fresh to me, and I would just, I would, you know, I would do the thing. And let's just admit that we all did it, and we would just open and say, Lord, what would you have me read today? And you do this thing, and you're like, oh, and what if you just happened upon Isaiah 46, verses 1 and 2? Bell bows, I'm really excited. Bell bows down. What, what are we talking about? Nebo stoop, their idols are on beast and livestock. They bow, I don't know what we're talking about here. Let me go to the Psalms instead. So we have passages like this, don't we? That it's just, unless we're kind of in, but we we kind of have a benefit, don't we? Because we as a church have been walking all the way through the entire book of Isaiah. So we don't have to struggle too hard to set up um, grand context, do we? Because we already know it. We already know that there's the great Babylonian threat happening right here. We know that the, the Assyrian threat has passed at this time. And now there's the Babylonian threat. So um, I would imagine that there, this has something to do with this Babylonian threat that's looming over their heads. And we'd be exactly right. We don't need to establish that. We've already done that because that has been the context, hasn't it? So, but what is this particular context with Bel and Nebo? Because we've not heard of them yet in the book of Isaiah. So who are these funny characters? Well, it all begins with a, uh, <laughs> a genealogy, okay? So here's our little genealogy. Yeah. I, so we're kind of familiar, though, with 
the Greek pantheon, though, aren't we? We know the Greek gods because kind of, they become famous. But what about the Mesopotamian gods? Because it's a different set of gods. We're not as familiar with those gods. Now, if it would have said, uh, Zeus bows down. Okay, well, oh, Zeus. I get Zeus. I know who that is. He's one of their, you know, their gods. Uh, but that's not what it says. It says, Bell bows down and Nebo stoops. But who are they? Well, so here's kind of a, a rough idea. And believe me, this is very rough because... You, there is no set in stone um, genealogy of the Mesopotamian gods. It's kind of all over the place. But uh, we know that Apsu and Tiamat are kind of reign supreme, Tiamat in particular, but we'll talk about her. And so then we kind of have some others, and some of these are brothers and sisters. Some of them are brothers. Some of them are husband and wife, and they change their role uh, sometimes. So were they brother and sister? Were they husband and wife? What are they? Uh, yeah, it kind of changes. But anyway, we get some names here. Uh, great names. Uh, Anshar, Kishar, Anu, Antu, Ki, Enki, Enyul, Ninsun. You like these names? I like them. Uh, but what we have here is we have this idea that um, there were the gods in the beginning. And then there were other gods underneath them and other gods underneath them and other gods underneath them. Now, I, I find it interesting that over in this genealogy of Enlil and Nisun, there's two characters that you probably know of, which is Ishtar and Gilgamesh. You've heard of Ishtar. You had to have heard of Ishtar. And Gilgamesh, you've probably heard of because there's this story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which a lot of people say, oh, the Bible just stole their stories from the epic of Gilgamesh. That's Gilgamesh right there. Comes from this same, uh, not exactly at the same time, but I'm just showing you generally they come from that side of the family tree. Um, but anyway, we have coming from Ah or Enki, this character Marduk, and then his son, Nebu. Okay, Marduk and Nebu. And they are very, very important characters. Now, what you don't see in this list are the characters that we just mentioned here, Bel and Nebo. They're not in here. Well, it seems to be. But they are in here. But let's just look at Scripture a couple of times where this uh, character, Bel, is mentioned. Bel is only mentioned three times in Scripture. One of them is here. And there are two other times in Jeremiah. Now, the interesting thing about Jeremiah is who Jeremiah was writing during the time of this kind of a similar context Isaiah is looking forward to the Babylonian captivity, and Jeremiah is kind of right there, right in front of it, uh, but still talking about uh, Babylon. So Jeremiah 51:44, and I will punish Bel in Babylon. So this guy, Bel, important to understand who this is, because evidently this really means something, right? This really means something. Now, if it were to just say a name, let's just imagine that there were a prophet speaking to us, and they were to sell, then they were, they were to say, for example, uh, Bell will be punished. You say, that, that doesn't really mean uh, much to me. But then give a name of a world leader that you feel like is about to dominate the world. And you say, oh, they're, oh that, now that, that means something to me. So the name Bell meant something to them in their context. That's what I want you to hold on to for the moment. So uh, next one. Uh, this is uh, Jeremiah 50, verse 2. Declare among the nations and proclaim, set up a banner, proclaim, conceal it not, and say, Babylon is taken. Bel is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. Okay, so there's another character, Merodach. Now, here's why we have to talk about what this means. 
because these names have meaning and we have to understand what their meaning is because we have to understand what the context is because if we don't have meaning, we don't have context, then we're not able to arrive at proper application of what the word of God is saying. So we don't just take these things for granted, right? So when we read, we understand what's being said. But what I want you to see is that Bel is associated with Merodach because it's this idea of parallelism saying Bel is put to shame is the same as saying Merodach is dismayed. Okay? So Bel and Merodach, same characters. Merodach is the Hebrew transliteration of an Akkadian name, Marduk. Okay? So Bel is put to shame who is the same as Merodach who is the same as Marduk. So when we say Bel is put to shame, Bel stoops. This is Marduk, one of their gods. Now, which god is he? And how significant was this to them? To read this as the people of God and looking at the greatest world power that they know, the word of God is saying to them, their god, the god of this great world power, is about to bow down. That's important. That's very significant. Bel is, uh, is a title. Bel means Lord, kind of like Baal or Baal means Lord. It's a title or master. And so instead of saying the name Marduk, they kind of replaced it with a title Lord, which is very much actually what the, the uh, Israelites did with the name Yahweh, right? Placing it with Adonai and saying Lord in its place. Well, this is actually very similar to what's happening. So they would sell, say Bel in the place of Marduk call him Lord, because maybe his name was sacred. So Bel bows down, also known as Marduk. Marduk became the primary god of Babylon during the time of Hammurabi. And you've heard me talk about Hammurabi because I got super excited about Hammurabi. Why? Because earlier this year, I was in Berlin, and I was able to be next to the code of Hammurabi, the original, um, and so that was exciting to me. You, you, many of you, some of you, some of you actually do. That's, that's exciting to you. Uh, it was exciting to me. I got my picture taken, you know, uh, you know, I was there next to the Kota Hammurabi and it was very exciting, very old, um, and it, connection here, right? Why is that exciting? Because it has a connection of things that we have in our possession here still that connects us back to biblical history, which is exciting to me. We have, the, look, look at how real this is. So, um, not only that, you would take the name, I was getting off track there, I was getting too excited about Hammurabi. So anyway, back to what we're talking about. Uh, so we're, we're, we're looking here at, at these names. So here's some names that you do know. Nebuchadnezzar. What's the beginning of that name? Nebu, which is the son of Marduk. Okay? Uh, Nabonidus, again, beginning of that name is Nebu. Nabonidus was the father of Belshazzar. Remember who Belshazzar is in Babylon. Belshazzar has what at the beginning of it? Bel. The name Belshazzar, I think I have these on the screen. What do I have first? Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, uh, Nabonidus. Oh yeah, there's a good one. Evil Merodach, uh, or Marduk. Uh, somebody help me. 
Merodach, I said it right the first time. Evil Merodach, man of Marduk is what that name translates to. And we find him in 2 Kings and Jeremiah. Now, Merodach Baladin, we've talked about him not too long ago because Merodach Baladin is the one who came to see King Hezekiah when he got sick. You remember that? That there was someone sent from Babylon to say, oh, how you doing, king? And what kind of treasures do you have? Kind of just show me. Merodach Baladin is the one that was sent. Now, Merodach is, again, the transliteration of in Hebrew to Marduk. And the name means Marduk has given me an heir. Okay. Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel protect the king's life. So Bel and Marduk, right? Same character, very significant to the Babylonians, right? That's what I'm establishing for you. And it very much works itself into the context of scripture. So when you read these names, these people coming from Babylon that have the name of their God even worked into their name, it's very significant. Because now we look and we see, chapter 46, verse 1, Bell bows down. Bell bows down. Okay, so one more thing we need to do to set the scene. We have the idea of the names of these gods, but there's something else happening here. And in... Babylon. Let's get a. Well, let's go back to my. I'm throwing. I'm throwing Rob for a loop like all over the place. I know I am. He's doing his best to keep up with me. Um, let's look at some pictures of Babylon. Okay, here's an aerial image uh, currently of the area of Babylon. This is just from Google satellite image. This is Babylon. So here's an overlay of the city, the ancient city of Babylon. Uh, this is how big it was. You see the black outline, kind of rectangular shape, and then there's a bigger shape. The outside is a wall that was established by Nebuchadnezzar, and the blue is water uh, that's around the wall just to better establish. I mean, they've, people have been doing that for a long time, haven't they? Put water around the wall, that makes it even harder to get in. So there's water all the way around, water running through the middle, and you, know, you see how big of an area this is. Now also, you see the river used to take a little bit slightly different path there. There's a little yellow area. Do you see that? That little yellow area is the area that is remaining today in ruins. That's all that's left of this whole area of Babylon, the great city Babylon. And this is what it looks like today. This is that little yellow section. Uh, so here's uh, an artist rendering of what the city was like back in the day. And... So there's a couple different things happening. Hopefully you've kept your bearings here. You see that rectangular shape, the river running through the city. And so we see that little rectangle there, the ruins that you just saw in Babylon. And right there at the top, that's still the section is there today, known as the Ishtar Gate. The Ishtar Gate. And then right here is a picture. That's not where I was going, but that, there's a picture. Right there is the temple of Marduk in the city. Do you see it? Hopefully you can see that from where you're at. Very significant to what we're about to read. So here is the, so there was a German uh, excavation. And so the Germans kind of got their hands on these things in Babylon and they liked what they found. This is the actual Ishtar gate. Now, obviously it's been, uh, you know, worked up, but this is the actual uh, Ishtar gate, the entrance into Babylon. Do you see how big it is? Do you see the little people down there? Uh, the picture is actually bigger, but I had to, I had to kind of work it in somehow for the screen. But uh, it's beautiful looking, isn't it? See the, like the little dragony looking serpent type, serpent's the wrong word, dragon looking thing, right? You see it? And there's a kind of like a bull, almost looks like a unicorn without a horn looking thing. Okay, all those are very significant. Just so you know, that's a bull, a young bull. And then this is um, a little dragon. And this dragon was Marduk's 
friend, and he's always pictured with his little pet dragon, Marduk is. And so this is the Ishtar Gate, a gate built in honor of Ishtar, one of their gods. And there we have uh, uh, symbolized there. Now, what this is, is a picture of Marduk, and he is uh, overtaking Tiamat. Now, do you remember where Tiamat was in our big uh, um, genealogy of the gods? What happened was Marduk saw this creature here, known as a creature of the chaos monster is what she was. No one really liked Tiamat and she was doing whatever she wanted up there in the gods and had power and some, they wanted, the gods wanted somebody to go and stop her from doing all this bad stuff that she was doing. Well, Marduk said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll, I'll go and I'll take down Tiamat, um, but only if you let me take her place at the top. And so they said, okay, I'm not really positive about all of that. But then so his son, Nabu, he says, guys, let's get it together. Let's, let's let my dad go to the top and um, let's let him do it. So, so uh, Nabu rallies all the gods and they say, okay, Marduk, you go do your thing. And so Marduk uh, defeats Tiamat and he now is at the top and reigns supreme. And underneath him is his son, Nabu who rallied the gods to get them to support uh, Marduk in his task. All that super, super clear? Yeah. All right. Now, read an essay about it. Why is all that important? Well, it's all because of this picture right here. And again, I told you, we're establishing something that is important to our text. I'm going to show you. So, there's the Ishtar Gate, and there's a road. Okay, you see there's a road running right through the middle there. There you go. That's how you'd enter into Babylon. This is known as the processional way. They had every year a festival in Babylon called the Akitu Festival. And it was either 11 or 12 days. People are not really sure about that. Um, but here's what would happen. Once a year in March, April, because that was the beginning of the year. Actually, it was the beginning of the year for a long time until... Uh, Roman times, and now we have January, and now we celebrate the new year different than what the ancient people did. Anyway, um, so about April, uh, March, they would have this New Year's festival, and here's what would happen. They would reenact the whole story that I just told you. So they would take Marduk from his temple, they would take the gods from their temples, and they would take Nabu from his temple. Now, Nabu was actually in a temple in a different city, about 15 miles away, best I can tell. So they would bring Nabu. Now, why did they need Nabu for this whole reenactment? Because Nabu, remember, rallied all the gods to say, let's let Marduk defeat the Tiamat, right? The chaos monster god. And so, anyway, they do this, uh, this reenactment where they put the gods on different things, they would carry them through the streets and they'd put them on animals and they'd carry them through the streets and then eventually they'd lead them to a, uh, a boat. They, remember, there's so much water around, right? They put them on a boat, they take them on this little journey. They, they were playing with toys. They were just really big. And they were like acting out, it's almost like, you know, like those little green army men figures, right? And we like act out little scenes and, you know, move the guys over here and move it. And then they, this guy does this and then they lead them through here. But they were doing that with giant statues. So you got the picture of that? It's kind of strange, right? It's strange until you remember, you know, like the uh, 
Thanksgiving Day Macy's Parade with the giant things that we parade through the streets. But anyway, so they, they were doing this with their giant uh, statues, but they would have to move them somehow, right? And so then they would move them back in, and, and eventually this ends in a uh, lot, lot to that story, but I'll, I'll spare that. Uh, spare you that. And so they would lead the statues back through the processional way through the gate. How? Carrying these giant statues? Well, yes, at times they would have to hoist them up to the place where they go, right? But after they would hoist them down, they would set them and let animals help them take them along to wherever they were going. And they would parade them through the streets and Marduk would be the, the big showstopper. Why? Because this is a reenactment of Marduk taking his proper place in the gods, his proper place in the city of Babylon. And Marduk's temple was known as kind of the hub, the center of the universe, and Babylon being his city. Big stuff going on here for the Babylonians. And then we read, okay, let's go back to our text. We're going to stay in the text from now on, okay? Let's go back to the text. Isaiah 46, verses 1 and 2. Bel bows down. And Nebo stoops, that is Nebu, his son. Their idols, listen, are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. What is being said here? The creator carries his creation He sets it up as his God and he relies on him then to save it. It says they cannot save the burden. That's that's difficult to tell who the they is referring to here, but I believe what's saying is Bel and Nebo, Marduk and Nebu cannot save the weary beasts from their burdens. Do you know why? Because they are the burdens. Just get that picture. Why can't Bel and Nebo save the beasts from their weary burden? Because they are the burden. We already are starting to get what that's meaning, right? You create these gods and you load them up. They're lifeless. They can't even walk. And you have to load them on beasts and they carry them through the city in this grand procession, celebrating this whole time, these great gods. If they're so great, why can't they carry themselves? If they're so great, why are you carrying them rather than them carrying you? If they're so great, why is this what's happening? But no, in fact, God says, no. Bel is going to bow down. And Nebo is going to stoop and bow down. That, that both of those mean that they're going to uh, have to give in, right? They're admitting defeat. And where do they go? They are led off into captivity. So the grand procession would march them in victory, Right? But now it's, we're marching in reverse. Now they're being led out of their city. Do you see how it's a smack in the face to their culture and what they were celebrating? They would celebrate victory. Whereas what God is saying, no, no, no. Defeat. They are going to bow their heads low because they've been defeated and they're going to be carried away into captivity themselves. This is what's going to happen. At one time, all were bowing down to them, but now it is they who are bowing down. Verses three and four. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth and carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. 
to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. So God says, I am going to carry you. Think about it. The people were carrying their gods and it became a weary, heavy load to them. But now God says to his people, I will carry you. And you will not be a heavy load for me to bear. Why? Because I am the one who can actually move. I have life in me. I am the true God. I can carry you. Rather than these lifeless, dead things that you've created that can't carry themselves, no, in fact, I'm going to carry you. And he says, you who have been born by me from before your, that is carried by me, you have been carried by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, and even to your old age and your gray hair, I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and will save. God made his people and he will carry them. He will carry them and he will save them. So then what's left for me to do? What is the weary, heavy load that I need to carry? Answer? There isn't one. God is the one doing the carrying. Now, we can already stop right here and make some pretty significant life application, can we not? Because I know, I know for certain how many of you came in this room today carrying a heavy load with you. We all have our heavy loads that we carry around with us. And if we would stop and take perspective and remember, I feel like I'm carrying myself through this life, but it is actually God who is carrying me. And I've forgotten that. I feel like I have this fight and this burden and this load that I just, I can't carry it. But you're not carrying yourself. God is carrying you. And how long has he been carrying you? From the womb. Well, how long will he carry me? <laughs> to your gray hair. I laugh because I'm starting to get some. And to your gray hair. What does that mean though? From the beginning until the end, God has got you. And he is carrying you. Would you like to be in that frame of mind every single moment of every single day? God is carrying me through this day. I feel like I'm carrying myself. It's a weary load for me to bear, but I remember that actually God is the one carrying me. Now, for them in this context, in this historical moment, this was a big deal to put it in these terms. But the general idea we can very easily come to understand here, can't we? God is the one carrying us, and how can he carry us? Because he is God. He is alive, he is not dead. He can speak, he is not mute. We do not need to carry our God. Our God carries us. That's encouraging, right? By the way, you know there's nothing that you can create that can save you. You say, yeah, I know. You don't need to tell me that. We can be certain that anything we can create Anything we do create only becomes a burden for us to carry. 
And it won't be long before that burden becomes weary because we can't carry a heavy load with us. We're just like them. Isn't that what we constantly see in scripture is that it turns out that although they lived in a different time in a different place with a different language, different customs, different culture, we're just the same. We have a tendency to want to create things that we believe can save us. But when we create those things that we believe can save us, they become a weary, heavy load for us to carry. And we have to be mindful of the fact that we are not carrying ourselves but instead God is the one carrying us. And that's an encouragement to our hearts. So he continues, verses five through seven. And he says, so to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we might be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith. He makes it into a God. They fall down and worship. They lift it under their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. We get all that, right? And it just stands there. It can't move. It can't move from its place. And so if someone bows down and cries to it, it does not answer. It does not save him from his trouble. When we are burdened and we are a burdened people, we seek to be released from our burden. I want you to just go with me. Maybe, maybe today is the day of really feeling you know, the burden of your life on you. I don't know if that's today, but it wasn't that long ago. And if it's not today, it may be tomorrow. But there are times in our life when we feel the weight of life crushing down on us, do we not? When you feel the weight of life crushing in on you, whatever that is, and those, those things change, by the way, don't they? It's not always the same thing that's crushing me. As soon as I get the weight of that thing off, oh, there's something else in line that lays on top of me. Is that what life is? Constantly just trying to get the burdens off of us? Constantly trying to move burdens and just get released from these burdens already? Is that what life is? But we do know that whenever we're burdened, we seek to be released from that burden, right? Isn't that your goal? Whenever something's weighing hard on you, isn't it your goal? Just get the, I don't know what I need to do. I don't know what needs to change, but I need to get this thing gone. I know whatever this weight is on me, let's just, let's make changes. Well, I don't know what we need to do, but let's get this burden gone from me. And so, unfortunately, sometimes we create something, we celebrate it, we think it's going to be that thing that finally gives us rest to our burdened, troubled heart, but then we come to realize that, in fact, that thing only becomes more of a burden to us. It's precious to us, Right? It's like gold and silver. Those are precious. And that's what they made their gods out of. We labor for it, right? We cry out to it. Almost like we're saying, so now is your time, thing I've created to deliver me. By the way, what can that be? That can be anything. Maybe church is the thing that you think is going to deliver you. Man, you're setting yourself up for a big disappointment if you think the church is going to save you. Maybe you think it's a better income, a change in location, which many of you in this room have had, right? Maybe you think just a change will be, that, that'll, that finally, will, things will be better. You create something thinking that this is finally the thing that's going to give me... Re- Release and just freedom weight off of my chest because that's what I want. 
then soon, because you rely on that thing and it's precious to you, it's, new, it's precious to you, and you labored for it, soon you realize that that's a, actually a crushing weight on top of you, and now you don't know what to do with it. Whatever you create is not going to free you from the burdens that you have in your troubled heart. There is only one thing that can release your burdens. But God says, do you, so do you think this is what I'm like? Do you think I'm like these gods that the people create? Is that, is that what I'm like? A figure of gold that people lift under their shoulders and they set it in place and they say, ah, my God that can deliver me. Now, do something. Deliver me. It's just going to sit there. It doesn't do anything. But there is a God who carries you throughout your entire life and he is the one who puts you up on his shoulders and he marches you into salvation. He saves you. He delivers you. You do not deliver yourself. Nothing you create can deliver you and can release you from the burdens of your heart. By the way, this is not only true for the unbeliever. This is true for the believer, understand. There's nothing you can create in addition to the gospel that's going to release the trouble of your burdened heart. It's only the gospel that gives you freedom. It's only the gospel that releases the weight of trouble. But still, we create stuff and we say, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Have you tried it? I know you have, I have too. It doesn't work, does it? We, th we think we have release for a time, but it doesn't work ultimately, does it? And we know that it doesn't. Do you remember back in chapter 40, God said, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. Why does he say that to them? Because they're a weary, burdened people. And their God is speaking to them and saying what? Comfort, comfort. So we get a better picture. Let's continue going on. Verses 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm and recall it to mind. Listen to what he calls them. My beloved dear children who are always so obedient to me. Or what does he say? You transgressors. Remember the former things of old. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning. Ancient things not yet done. My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So God yet again Remember I told you this is kind of what's happening is he narrows down on something specific to that time and place, right? Those gods who are bowing down in Babylon. And then he kind of pulls back and he gives this grand idea of what his character is really like. Remember these things of old. These are good for us to remember as well, right? There is no God, there is none other. I declare the end of a thing from its beginning. Ancient things not even yet done. And my counsel shall stand. I'm going to accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east. What is this? A man of counsel from a far country. Well, just 
go back to chapter 45, verse 1, and you're going to be reminded that that's Cyrus, right? Do you remember? He said, I name you by name. You are going to do what I have made you to do. Cyrus, who wasn't even born yet, wasn't even thought of yet. I'm going to create a man who's going to rise up and lead an army who's going to defeat the Babylonians while the Jewish people are in captivity, which you're not even in captivity yet, by the way. And they're going to release, he's going to release you, and then he's going to tell you to go and build your temple back. I am declaring the end of this thing from its beginning. I am calling a man from the east, and he will do everything that I have said. There's not even a chance that this is not going to happen. How can that be? How can it be? How can it be that there's no chance that this thing won't happen? Because he is God and his counsel shall stand, right? It's pretty, it's plain as day here, isn't it? How deep the sovereignty of God runs. And so just think for a second. He says, calling a bird of prey from the east. You ever seen those people? I think Amanda the other day said she wants to like train a falcon, you know, where they put the little helmet on it, you know? You take the little helmet off the bird. You know, you got to wear that like super thick leather sleeve, you know. You like this idea, Ginger? And so you put this, this thing on the bird. It stands there. And so you, you take, it's a bird of prey, right? You take the little helmet off and he goes, and he flies away. But what does he do? When the guy, I think they call or they whistle or they do something or they do a little signal. And it, I mean, you can't even see the thing. It's so high up there. And then it comes right back. Have you seen this? If you haven't, I mean, YouTube, this. I mean, it's pretty amazing what they can do with these birds. But you call it, and guess what it does? It comes back. Now, there's a chance, isn't there, that that bird's not going to come back? Some of that bird's, I'm not, I don't think so. I'm out of here. You let me go, I'm gone. But most of the time, what happens when the bird is trained well? You call it, you know, I doubt that's how they do it. But they say, you know, <laughs> come back, come back, bird, and it, there it is, Right? Unlike how God calls, because when God calls, there is zero chance that it's not going to happen. Zero chance. The calling of God is perfectly effective. So you can trust. Do you see how those two things go together? And you can allow God to carry you because God is carrying me through this life. Because he is perfectly sovereign in all that he does. He is perfectly sovereign all throughout history, calling the end of a thing, even from its beginning, telling you things that haven't even happened yet. And by the way, you think, well, yeah, he's talking to you know, them about like, stuff in their culture and people who will be kings and land and all this kind of, well, how does that help me at all? Because he has promised you something as well. Do you know that? And just as God did all of this perfectly, he is going to do something else for you perfectly as well. And you can trust in it and rest in it secured, knowing that your God is carrying you through. But we need to get there. Last couple of verses. Verses 12 and 13, let's read it. Listen to me again, you lovely children of mine who are always so obedient and love me so much. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, is what it says. You who are far from righteousness. 
I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. It's interesting that this stubborn of heart phrase, actually when you, there's a Greek translation that I I like to reference because it just helps with the understanding at the time. But anyway, it just, it translates this, you whose heart has failed you. Listen to me, you who have a serious heart problem. And it keeps you from coming near to me in righteousness. I have fixed that. And do you know how? I have brought my righteousness to you. You who are far off from me and you just, you can't get to God. You ever tried to just get to God on your own? That doesn't work so well but the nearness of God is made by faith in Jesus Christ and in faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is your nearness to God. Your nearness to God is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we have faith, and this brings about our nearness, which is the fellowship we were talking about earlier in the day, right? But God said, you can't come to me, and so I have made a way. I have come to you. Of course, we understand that perfectly, don't we? We understand that because he did that in Jesus Christ, ultimately. This was quite a long time before that were to come a reality, right? Reading this in the book of Isaiah about the year 700 BC. Think about 700 years from now. That's a long ways off, isn't it? God is pointing forward to a righteousness that he would bring near to the people. And he has done that for us in Jesus Christ. I just want to make one one connection here that I believe is an incredibly strong connection. If you would, just for a moment, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to end here in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, let's look at verse 25. You know this text, I know that you know it. But let's think of it in terms of what we've talked about today. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see the great comfort that God spoke so long ago to the people to deliver them? And yeah, we see God coming and yes, all that he spoke was true. See, we can look back on this and say, God was calling Cyrus, he did it. He called the people into Babylonian captivity and they were there. Then God called Cyrus, he released them. Cyrus said, go back and build your temple. All that came true. All that was exactly right on and God was doing exactly what he intended. We can look back on that and say, true, God did everything he said. He did it perfectly. 
And God is doing everything he said he was going to do perfectly today as well. God promised great comfort, comfort and rest and salvation. And he has brought it to us in Jesus Christ. But do you know there is another rest coming for us? I just had a week of vacation. Um, I didn't really go anywhere or anything. I just had a week off. And don't we all have this idealized version of vacation? I mean, I don't know. Are you on an island in a hammock and all your children are gone or occupied, right? And because you know that as soon as you close your eyes to rest, you give it 30 seconds and someone is crying or something happened or there's something here or so, something happens and it's just things are not as you intend, are they? Or whatever it is for, me, for you that maybe you have Sunday afternoons that maybe that's your rest time or I don't know what it is. Maybe for you, you've been working your whole life and finally you get to retire and maybe that's your rest. But you know that that rest is never all that it's cracked up to be, is it? But there is something that can give rest eternally to your soul. But I wonder, practically speaking, because maybe you're hearing this as a come to Jesus message. Well, in a sense, yes. It's always that. If a message is not come to Jesus in faith, then it's the wrong message, by the way. That's, that's where all of our messages end because that's where the Bible ends. But we are coming to him in faith. Yes, but listen, this isn't a recognize that you've never come to Christ and so come to him, although that's absolutely true as well. However, I know my audience. For those of you who have had faith in Jesus Christ and have this salvation and rest for your soul, I believe many of us are being robbed of the benefits of Christ because we are continuing to set up burdens that we bear throughout this entire life rather than resting in the comfort of God. I'm going to take two minutes here to explain what I think for many in our culture is weighing us down. And there is a burden that is prevalent among many. And I think if we're not careful, this burden becomes our burden as well. And uh, I suppose I'd like to just recommend something to your reading. Um, Carl Truman wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a great book. There's one a little bit more accessible. Um, it's called Strange New World by Carl Truman. Some of these ideas he gives in it, but what, what he's saying, I, I think there's some, there's some merit to the general concept here that we need to be aware of is that if you have noticed that there are several things happening in our culture, right, that we can put our finger on individual outworkings of these things in our culture and people get all worked up about them. At the heart of them, I believe, is a pressing desire for, um, and I'll just use his term for this, expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, and, 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 and at the heart of what this is saying is, we are individuals, and the concept of the individual self, and what, this, what, the, what the ultimate rest for your soul is going to be. Okay, I'm going to tie it into this idea of rest. What will give you ultimate rest and release from your burdens is to discover who the real you is, and to live it fully. And if something or someone is in your way of you being who you want to be, get away from them. Burn the bridge. 
cut them down, publicly humiliate them if possible. That, that would be nice. So that they stand as an example to the masses. Do not get in the way of me being who I feel like I am. Do you see how many, many things that we see working out in our culture come from the heart of this matter? Don't tell someone that they're not who they think they are. You can't do that. They have looked deep inside and they have discovered the real them. Who are you to say they're wrong? You don't know the real them. But to us, we can say, I can look at you as an individual created by God. I can see who you are meant to be. The true goal is not to be the real you. The true goal is to be like Christ. Do you see how different those ideas are? Be you fully. It doesn't matter. That's why so many are, are uh, you know, uh, I wasn't familiar with this term until my wife caught me up to speed, but this whole idea of quiet quitting, right? Are you familiar with this idea? Okay, the younger crowd is. Um, this idea of quiet quitting, it, it's because your job gets in the way of you being you. And if your job gets in the way of you being you, it takes too much of my time, it's too much weight, then I'm just going to show up, but you better believe that's all you're getting from me. Right? Because you're getting in my way, you're cramping my style. I don't want to do this. I don't want to work. I want to be me. I want to just do whatever I want to do with my life. But I just wish I had more money to do it. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that, that gets in the way, right? And so, uh, anyway, I want you to be aware of this, uh, this idea because in many things, in, in media and advertising, in songs that we listen to, shows you're watching on TV, news, and everywhere, it's everywhere, books that you're reading, whatever you listen to, podcasts, it's everywhere. And if you were to be the real you, by the way, you know what has stopped you from being the real you for a long time? Religion. Your religion has gotten in the way. You were told that a boy's a boy and a girl's a girl. Listen, 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 listen. I have, I, I have discovered the truth. And it's not that, right? Your mind has been blurred because of your religion. And so has many other things. It's just your religion is the problem. So if you want to stay Christian, though, this is where deconstruction comes in, right? So if you want to stay Christian, then deconstruct your religion and build up something else that you think is probably right. You know, God is kind of like this, but he's probably not like that. I like this idea of Christianity, but let's get rid of that concept. And so you build, you construct a new Christianity. You call yourself Christian, but then you look at these people and you say, you're a Christian, but you don't even believe the basic tenets of the gospel. It's because they have a self-serving basis for the gospel. They have changed the gospel into something else that meets our cultural demands. So let me put it in terms of our text. Instead of parading around Bell and Nabu through the streets, we are parading around the individual self and bowing down to it. And it is a temptation for each one of us. And we need to be very careful that yourself does not become your God that you bow down to, the thing that you are seeking to create and worship because it's only going to become more of a burden to you. Jesus comes and he says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The answer for the unbeliever and the believer is the same. 
come to Jesus Christ in faith, repenting of your sin that creates a distance between you and your God. Put God in his proper place today and you will find rest for your soul. All right, let's pray.